We're under siege. First the wolves, now the lynx. What next? Yeah. yeah. Maybe saber-toothed tigers will make a comeback. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mammoths. Uh, what? <laughs> It's Friday, February 3rd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and The Hague Food Correspondent. With me today is uh, Gordon Derek, as ever, contributing editor at Dutch News and Royal Aging Expert. Um, I think we should start with your uh, job title, you think? Uh, Gordon. Yeah, you've been uh, paying close attention to uh, the new official photos of uh, Princess Beatrix that has come out this week, right? Hey. Well, not that close attention, but yes, there was an official photo published because um, it was her 85th birthday this week, uh, and everyone wished her a happy birthday. Um, and I, yeah, I just noticed she she's 85 years old now and still uh, looks very healthy. And it, it, it was it's almost it's coming up to 10 years now since uh, she abdicated uh, in favor of uh, King uh, the King King Willem Alexander, her son, uh, which was uh, on King's Day 2013. Um, and, Queen's uh, Day yeah, she doesn't look then. a day older since so yeah. I just come to think uh, abdication is clearly good for your health it's kind of curious that she abdicated when she was younger than King Charles when he started as king <laughs> <laughs> when he succeeded yeah. his mother So something I, I, I never realised and also didn't yeah. realise that it has already been 10 years ago since uh, yeah. uh, since uh, Willem Alexander uh, yeah, ascended the throne yeah. Um, but yeah we have a, a tradition of, of abdication in the Netherlands ever since William the uh, first wanted to marry a, a Belgian baroness which was a bit <laughs> awkward uh, since uh, Belgium had just uh, uh, you know, he had fought a, a, a long war uh, fighting uh, against the Belgium uh, uh, independence. Yeah. Um, so that is how uh, <laughs> how these sort of things started uh, in the Netherlands, at least. But yeah, the, the UK has, of course, a different uh, um, yeah attitude towards kingship, I guess. Yeah. Um, but even popes retire these days now. Yeah. So and yet yeah, the yeah, Queen yeah. of England just soldiers on until the age of ninety six. I find it quite. I find it a little bit bizarre. I have to say, but I thought the Dutch abdication tradition, well, these days is kind of sport started by uh, Wilhelmina no so she um, abdicated because abdic- actually abdicating to let your uh, you know um, uh, the, the heir to the throne t- t- to take the throne up I thought that was uh, Wilhelmina kind of instigated that that's right yeah Wilhelmina yeah. was the last queen who uh, ascended the throne following the death of her, her uh, parent but that's because William the Third, her father, um, uh, uh, he, he was very old when 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 she was born. Uh, yeah. Basically, there was a, uh, a constitutional crisis uh, after all his children had died. So he uh, scandalously married a very young uh, German princess uh, in order to get uh, uh, an heir to the throne. Yeah. That's that was uh, Wilhelmina. But uh, yes, she was eight. No, she was under the age of eighteen when she ascended the throne. Of course, because uh, yeah. Queen Emma, her mother, was uh, was a um, uh, regent for for a couple of a couple about of ten years. years, wasn't it? There's a ten yeah. year regency, I think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 something like that. Yeah. Um, but 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 if uh, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure if uh, uh, well, actually, I don't know if if yeah, so uh, she really basically decided would have... having been queen since the age of ten, she kind of fancied to change the scene. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. For fancy being a princess, she's probably a princess. I don't know. Was she a princess longer after she was queen than before? She probably was. Yeah, we'll have to look that up. No, um, she died. I think somewhere in the sixties. She oh, abdicated right. in forty-eight. So yeah. Well, in that case, she would have been. No, well, I mean, I sent her the throne in eighteen ninety-eight officially. Ah. So oh, officially, yeah, uh, yeah. So so she's been queen for uh, half a century and. Uh, yeah, then had a retirement of twenty years. Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes. <clears throat> in the meantime, uh, yes. Speaking of um, uh, royal privileges in the Hague, uh, you've been tucking into some Indonesian cuisine, have you? Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, the French president Emmanuel Macron uh, visited Margrethe this week in the Hague, um, and as yeah, it's starting to become a tradition that uh, they have a. Uh, a press conference in in one of the um, uh, uh, 
yeah, grand halls of uh, of, of of the Binnenhof. Uh, but then afterwards, they go uh, go out for dinner yeah. in one of the smaller restaurants in in The Hague. And uh, usually, Margrethe picks a restaurant with a French name. Um, I noticed uh, when I <laughs> looked up where they uh, where they had been in the cup in the past years. But this time, uh, this year it was a little bit different. Margrethe yeah. just brought him uh, to one of the yeah best Indonesian restaurants uh, in 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 The Hague. Yeah, uh, I, I, think, I have to say, I think that's a smarter move than taking him to a Dutch version of a French restaurant <laughs> with the president of France. So that's just asking for criticism. Now <laughs> I come to think of it, that's actually probably a very worse. Because someone said uh, 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 it came out that they were going to, uh, going out for dinner, right? And yeah. uh, um, uh, who who was it who said like this is this is uh, uh, potentially a very dangerous uh, uh, move uh, uh, regarding Dutch French uh, relationships? Uh, that, I said that. Yeah. Oh, that was you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought, thought there was someone else. Sorry. No. Um, 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 which is true and yeah if you bring <laughs> the French president to a French restaurant in the Netherlands yeah, yeah. that's that's indeed a very dangerous thing but uh, actually an Indonesian restaurant is, is probably the safer option yeah oh definitely um, yeah and um, um, Margrethe had an Instagram live session yesterday uh, and I, uh, you, you could submit some questions and I thought, well, what, what should I ask? And I asked about how Macron found um, uh, Indonesian food and if it was his first time and if he liked it. And apparently he did. Uh, at least that's what he said, uh, what he told um, Margrethe. Uh, uh, but, but whether that is a diplomatic answer or not, we will probably never know. We no. should read Macron's <laughs> memoirs uh, in a couple of uh, decades, I think, yeah, yeah, in order to... Uh, to find that out yeah AP put out a picture of Macron in the restaurant with Guta and Macron sort of looked a little bit kind of uh, I don't know what I'm letting myself in for here but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think Indonesian food is pretty good now, actually I mean I, I put out uh, a tweet about it because it's such an easy hit talking about the Dutch and restaurants but I was, I was actually pleased to see quite a bit of pushback so there are some good restaurants in The Hague particularly Indonesian it was a good choice by Guta actually I think in all seriousness and um, uh, yeah and also someone uh uh, uh, published the menu for this restaurant, which was uh, so that the the rice tafel there was like twenty seven euros ahead, which is pretty good, pretty good, extremely cheap, pretty good value. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. taxpayers' money well spent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> indeed. Uh, so uh, th- that might be uh, the reason why he chose this this particular restaurant Probably. because it's so cheap. Even though yeah. it is on the prime location, right? It's on the Knutendijk, yeah. Dijk, uh, uh, very very near the Binnenhof. So they uh, they had only a very short walk uh, to go with that. It's it's very strange to see the president of France uh, just walking uh, uh, on 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 the street, right? You you're just used to him seeing in 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 these enormous motorcades with um, uh, usually a Citroën car uh, instead of. A Mercedes yeah. or something yeah. like that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's always uh, an interesting sight to see. Uh, yeah, to, yeah. To, he, he couldn't w- get him to go on a bicycle though. Usually that's what happens when foreign heads <laughs> of state visit the Netherlands, right? They all go out on a bicycle cavalcade. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a not famous picture of Helmut Kohl trying to cycle in the Netherlands uh, years ago. Ooh. I, I can't remember, but I'm Not sure there is uh, an interesting photo. Um, Joe Biden. That's probably why Joe Biden hasn't come to the Netherlands yet, because he's just afraid of stepping on a bike again. Yeah, they'll have to get an e-bike for Joe Biden. I think. Yeah, yeah, and a helmet, and a defibrillator. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I w- also there's also one thing I wanted to mention uh, uh, at least that is that this week saw the 70th anniversary of the Watersnoodramp, yes. which is uh, uh, yeah one of the more uh, important, impactful events in in, in post World War II uh, Dutch history. I think mm-hmm. uh, it was a major flooding in uh, 1953, um, uh, which uh, mostly affected the province of Zeeland. Uh, there was a um, yeah very heavy southwestern storm co- combined with high tides and. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, very bad maintenance of the dikes following the wars and in war times uh, as as well, and that led to um, yeah countless of uh, yeah uh, 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 breaches of the dams and yeah. um, uh, uh, almost two thousand people uh, died that night. Yeah, it, so it also hit the east of England, the east coast of England. Because yeah. uh, my mother, who grew up near Norwich, uh, remembers can just about remember the floodwaters um, uh, after uh, the aftermath of the floods, and a few people died there as well. Uh, indeed, England was also uh, severely hit. Uh, uh, of 
course. Uh, but following this this disaster, this this uh, these major floodings, uh, uh, yeah, the Netherlands decided to um, uh, implement the Delta Plan. Uh, yeah. You hear that very often uh, uh, as well. I just heard it this week again. We need a Delta Plan for this or that. That this yes. is where it comes from. Um, and uh, we basically decided to reduce the uh, the Dutch coastline by half. Uh, by uh, closing off all these sea arms in uh, in Zeeland um, with uh, uh, dams and with uh, sluices, uh, with uh, increasing complexity, and uh, um, yeah, you you often hear that. Uh, uh, this is, or at least in the Netherlands, you often hear that this is the eighth miracle of the world. I, I'm guessing every country has an, uh, his or her own uh, eighth miracle of the world, but yeah, this probably, is ours. Yeah. Um, and uh, the pinnacle, of course, is the uh, Oosterschelde-kering. This, this, uh, uh, yeah, four kilometers dam with with uh, uh, with doors that can be closed in the event of a storm. Um, and also the Maasland-kering at the port of Rotterdam, these uh, yeah, uh, uh, steel arms the size of the Eiffel Towers that can close in the event of, uh, of a major yeah. flood. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, w- when do you think the Delta works, as they're called, uh, were finished? In what when year? they're actually finished? It was about 1984, wasn't it? Something like that. So. 2015. <laughs> and there was a, uh, there was a uh, small dam built in uh, i believe harlingen i think and right. it was also part of the plan so uh, uh-huh. um, and, and also the offsluitdijk is not part of the it's not part, no, that, that preceded that right that yeah, was before yeah. the first world war yeah some second people world war, full second world war yeah. For, uh, second world war yeah some people think that was also part of the uh, uh, delta works but it isn't yeah but that was a response to a previous flood right there's a flood in about 19 19- 10 or something there, there were floods all the time yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah that happens in a low-lying country doesn't yeah. it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah indeed by and the sea uh, yeah uh, I, I think even the the Zuider Zee is was a result of one of these floods uh, hmm. that uh, in, in in the 13th century or something um, so yeah um, 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 an event that had a major impact on the Netherlands it still has and uh, yeah just imagine 2,000 people dying in one night uh, in, yeah. in, in in such a small province uh, it's now still uh, it still is uh, uh, not many people live there but but in the 50s uh, it was even less of course hmm. so um, yeah it's um, uh, an, an event worth uh, commemorating I think so moving on from one disaster, uh, we're now uh, coming up to the um, uh, the provincial elections. The and, upcoming uh, that, disaster. <laughs> the SS generate, yes, uh, which will tr- probably generate lots of minor disasters and lots of uh, that we know as OPEFs. So this OPEF the week, this week is a slightly more serious OPEF uh, because um, yeah, we're actually going to mention the uh, the start of the campaign for the uh, for the provincial elections. Yes, the uh, campaign season has officially been kicked off by a joint, uh, yeah, you could say OPEF stirring interview in the Telegraaf uh, with Prime Minister Mark Rutte and Edith Schippers. Uh, she leads the uh, VVD candidate list for the Eerste Kamer. Uh, and of course, we're talking about the upcoming provincial council elections. Uh, and in that interview, Schippers and Rutte attacked the Green Left Party GroenLinks and the Social Democrats of PVDA, who recently decided to join forces and together they will form a single faction in the Senate. Rutte warned that these two parties plan to raise at least nine taxes. Uh, he didn't specify which ones, uh, but he only said at least nine. Um, a good result uh, for these two parties will give them momentum for the next Tweede Kamer elections. He said, adding that he fears uh, uh, something called a, a leftist cloud. And uh, yeah, it was this term that uh, stirred the OPEF, I think. Yeah, because, is that uh, going to cause heavy flooding again? Is that his worry? <laughs> <laughs> heavy floodings of, of socialism and... Uh, yeah. and, and, and taxes. And, and tax yeah. raises, a rain yeah. of taxes. A rain of taxes, yeah. Um, the interview led to a storm of uh, reactions on social media. They uh, ridiculed uh, the claims made by Rutte and Schippers. People called the uh, very transparent attempt to create a twee-strijd or duel between VVD and GroenLinks slash PvdA laughable. And uh, CDA minister Hugo de Jonge called it fake. Um, of course, we have so many parties, right, that a, a, a proven strategy is to create a sort of duel between at two of these parties. Yeah. Uh, and that, that results usually in um, uh, better than expected results for both of these parties. And, yeah. uh, the most and then after fa- that, they go into coalition together. <laughs> Sometimes, and one of these parties <laughs> get decimated after that. The, yeah. the most uh, uh, recent example of that is, of course, uh, uh, the VVD uh, versus PvdA clash in 2020. 12 yeah. um 
And both uh, GroenLinks leader Jesse Klaver and Labour leader Arce Kuiker basically uh, shrugged uh, <laughs> as a result uh, in, in reaction to this interview. They said that the Prime Minister is right in fearing this so-called left-wing cloud. And they are also confident that their parties will win a large number of seats in the Eerste Kamer. Remember that the current coalition doesn't have a majority in the Eerste Kamer. It's not expected to win one in the next elections. And that means that they're probably going to need PvdA and GroenLinks. So it is uh, also in that regard an interesting uh, choice of, uh, uh, of of direct competitor for yeah choice of adversary yeah, yeah. indeed um, at this point as we should explain why we are talking about the Senate uh, when we've just said that these are provincial assembly elections right that's right um, yeah. the, and that is because the uh, 75 seats of the Senate did you correct that I, I said, did uh, yeah I, I will I always think it's 100 but it <laughs> I always turns think out it's to 100 be, as well yeah. I don't know why yeah that's right. That's because the uh, 75 seats of the Senate or the Eerste Kamer are not elected directly by the Dutch voters, uh, but rather indirectly by the new provincial councillors. And we elect them directly. So uh, the Senate yeah. comp- and the Senate composition is, of course, crucial for the cabinet because they also need a majority in the Eerste Kamer to pass legislation. And yeah, this is why, despite what every provincial candidate will tell you, this election is not about local issues of your poor province, but it's purely about national politics, right? Uh, and it's also yeah. the reason why you will see national politicians debating and campaigning um, in these elections even more than they already do in, for example, the municipality elections, which we had last year. Right. So who can vote on March 15th? Everyone who is Dutch over the age of 18 can vote in the provincial elections. Uh, If you do not have a Dutch nationality, you cannot vote. I think that is because of this... Um, connection with uh, with the national. Uh, I think so. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, e- yes, but because it's an indirect vote for the Senate. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What there so. is for the first time is there is a a kind of constituency, or the, 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 there are seats in the electoral college for the Senate for Dutch people living abroad. Yeah. So in the past, they haven't had a vote for the Senate because they don't live in a province. Yeah. So they yeah. also didn't have a say in in the uh, um, yeah in the national uh, Eerste Kamer assembly, yeah. which uh, um, is of course deciding uh, on things uh, were, uh, about them. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they changed that. Uh, they basically created a 13th, um, uh, 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 13th. virtual province, yeah. I guess. And, and uh, that is how they can uh, influence the, the uh, Eerste Kamer composition. Um, yeah. However, yeah. this is not the only election we will have to, uh, the, uh, on March 15. We also have the waterschap elections or the water boards. Um, and, um, crucial. Uh, crucial. Crucial elections. Yeah, um, yeah, we, yeah we just talked about uh, the watersnoodramp. Uh, th- yeah. th- these are the uh, the bodies that basically have to prevent floodings and uh, have to keep our feet dry, I guess. Yep. Um, and, but if you live in the Netherlands for longer than five years without a, national, uh, a Dutch nationality, you can vote in these elections. Yes. Uh, because uh, after all, you are paying uh, taxes and uh, according to the uh, lovely principle of no taxation without representation you can vote in this election even though nobody yeah really cares about it and um, yeah uh, um, it's not a really political body I guess but even no, though no, nobody uh, really participates in it but they are kind of yeah, make important decisions and there are stem visors as well for the water board elections as well yeah yeah. Um, but the water boards aren't don't cover the same territories as the provinces either. The, no, the, that's the, right. They're yeah. divided up by different areas. But yeah. you, if you're registered with the old local municipality, then you will get a stem pass in the post automatically. You don't yeah. have to register. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. also one uh, something wanted to uh, uh, point out. If you are eligible, you will get something in your mail, and then you know you you can vote. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, we will hear a lot of uh, ophef, I think, uh, about these provincial elections. We are, they have, I think, one or two uh, that has passed uh, uh, this yeah. week. Uh, yeah. the, 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 the the billboards in Utrecht. Yeah, uh, which are some uh, in Utrecht. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they are too small to 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 print all the uh, all the all the election posters uh, on them so uh, they're going to stop uh, 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 doing that and also uh, there were some candidates for especially form for democracy who already um, caused uh, a little bit of upheaf uh, I think yeah. and also Richard de Mos we talked about him last week right he uh, he's also on the list uh, on the senate list for um, BVNL I think yeah so, Belangen van NL yeah yeah Utrecht, I think he's yeah but we will, uh, we will, you will hear more about that uh, in the in the coming uh, episodes. I'm no sure. Doubt. Yeah. 
This week, The Hague uh, might not only be hosting romantic dinners, but also a new international tribunal. Uh, and while the city of international justice and peace wasn't reachable by car last weekend due to climate protests, MPs want to limit the number of international students at Dutch universities. People with long COVID will finally get a little compensation. And we will reveal which bird is the king of the backyard. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, announced that the commission is establishing a special office in The Hague to help prosecute Russia for crimes in Ukraine. The announcement came in a joint interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, held in Kiev on Thursday. The International Center for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression in Ukraine, as the uh, office will officially be called. It's almost a Soviet-like uh, title, I think. <laughs> it does very, sound like that, yeah. Very long. Yeah. Uh, but this office will uh, coordinate the collection of evidence as part of the joint investigation team, which uh, also investigated the downing of flight MH17 by pro-Russian uh, Ukrainian separatists in 2014. The JIT is part of the EU's judicial agency Eurojust, which I never heard of, but apparently also headquarters in The Hague. Yes. Uh, um, it is yet unclear when the new office will be opened, but von der Leyen told journalists it must be soon, adding that the new center is a strong symbol of the EU's support for Ukraine against Russia, which must be held accountable for its odious crimes, she said. And other details were also not released yet. Yeah, yeah. But this has been there's been a little uh, mini row going on, I think, uh, um, at, at, at the uh, in the Hague about wh- whether this should be prosecuted by the International Criminal Court or they need a separate tribunal. And they've uh, decided. I think most. Uh, uh, I heard quite a good uh, explanation by uh, the um, international prosecutor uh, Philippe Sands as to why you need a separate tribunal because the ICC can't prosecute the crime of aggression. You can prosecute mm. other war crimes like genocide, but not not the crime of aggression. Obviously, the whole basis of the uh, case against Russia is that it launched uh, you know, um, uh, uh, an invasion uh, and an, uh, an aggressive uh, military intervention in Ukraine. So and that's why they want a separate prosecution office. Yeah, and Russia also simply does not recognize the ICC. Uh, that's the other d- thing. D- yes, of yeah, we, and yeah. Uh, I, I believe, but I'm not entirely sure, that uh, a prosecution in absentia is not a option in that particular court i believe so uh, yeah you, you you must be there uh, uh, at the icc in order to be prosecuted yeah so uh, anyway uh, vopka hookstra must be happy now yeah, yeah he is uh, the foreign affairs minister yeah has uh, spent last month uh, openly lobbying uh, uh, and s- has taken every opportunity to say that the netherlands w- would be more than happy to have the hague host an international tribunal against russia uh, and while the investigative office isn't quite an international tribunal yet it is seen as an important first step in establishing a real one uh, the hague has of course adopted a city of international peace and justice as its official nickname Uh, They host a number of uh, international courts, uh, such as uh, uh, the International Court of Justice, uh, which is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations, uh, as well as the uh, International Criminal Court, which we just uh, mentioned. And uh, Hague has also, of course, uh, uh, hosted a number of international tribunals before, such as the Yugoslavia Tribunal. Um, An expert have said, uh, though, that the chances uh, that Russian leaders will face international justice are very slim. Uh, Yeah, Russia doesn't recognize the ICC and it's also very uh, unlikely that they will do uh, that. They will recognize a special international tribunal against Russia, of course. So um, um, there's also a discussion among legal scholars where the suspects can be prosecuted in absentia in in this uh, potential uh, tribunal. Um, but but still, it is a first international, uh, f- a first important step, and also an, 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 an a clear sign that um, um, the EU uh, is is determined to uh, to hold Russia accountable. Yeah, and I guess uh, that it, it's a sort of a contingency, really. It's impossible to imagine that Russia or any Russian officials will ever stand trial uh, over the war in Ukraine. But you know, uh, things can change. And uh, I remember uh, for a long time, people thought there was no chance of putting anyone on trial uh, for the bombing of the um, uh, of the Pan Am uh, flight over Lockerbie in Scotland. Mm. But there was, in the end, a Lockerbie trial. Things, you know, diplomatic things change, regimes change. You know, if Russia loses the war and um, Putin was replaced um, by some somebody else. Then there may be a very different uh, uh, yes, set of circumstances. And in the meantime, you want to have the gather the evidence in preparation, um, so that uh, if if the moment comes, you are able to prosecute. You've got the case files ready. 
Yeah, and you uh, as the EU, uh, you, you you want to show that uh, there is something called um, uh, 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 the rule of law, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, that we uh, have courts where these sort of things are um, uh, are dealt with. Yeah, and there's uh, more news uh, in the field of uh, international armed conflict as well. Isn't yeah, there? yes, because the Netherlands and Germany have taken an important step towards combining their armed forces. Uh, NSA reported this week, according to a not yet published plans uh, signed by the Dutch and German armies last November, the thir- the 13th Light Brigade will be put under the command of Germany's 10th Panzer Division. Mm. And that so me- Germany will be given the charge of the Light Brigade. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, uh, speaking of things we had never seen coming, um, and that uh, yeah, this if this merging will happen, it means that all Dutch infantry brigades will be integrated by the German army, uh, and yeah, the two countries will form three binational divisions with a total manpower of fifty thousand, and that is the closest partnership between two countries in NATO. Uh, the defense ministry said, though, that uh, no political decision had yet been taken and the common army vision, that's the confidential plans NSA quoted from, is merely a proposal. They added that the integration of the 13th Light Brigade into the German army is being investigated, though. And the coalition agreement from January 2022 mentioned closer cooperation with Germany uh, without going into details, but yeah, a full-blown uh, integration, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very uh, severe step, I think. Um, two brigades already on the German command, and uh, to have a third one, it basically means that, uh, yeah, there are also some questions raised about uh, uh, sovereignty, right? Uh, yeah. What if it's, it's, it's yeah, still unimaginable that Germany wants to do something that the Netherlands doesn't want, but what if that is the case, uh, Germany wants to deploy this uh, this division somewhere that the Netherlands doesn't want. What will happen then? Uh, uh, th- these are st- all questions that need to be need to be answered. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, this curious situation. Last week, uh, the, the uh, Ritter was saying that uh, the, 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 because there was a whole um, yeah, impasse and a row over the sending the Leopard tanks to Ukraine. That one Ritter's solution was to leave the, the tanks that we now lease from Germany was to buy them out and send them to Ukraine. But yeah. now we've got a situation where the entire Dutch army has now become subordinate to the German army so you can lease the tanks in Germany buy them from Germany but then put them straight back under the command of German officers right <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, the, we have some strange scenarios coming up I think yeah so uh, yeah it's uh, but I hope they they have uh, thought it through uh, yeah, a little bit yeah. but, and uh, uh, Kaiser Longhorn as well we should say uh, did say in parliament uh, last autumn uh, that they were investigating the, the this option of integrating the yeah. 13th Light Brigade into the German army so it looks very much like it is a done deal and the German army is having a big reorganization that is supposed to be uh, completed uh, in April so and uh, the, the, according to NSA the report in NSA uh, they would have uh, the, 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 the aim is to have this integration done or ready to announce in any case uh, on, on April the 1st so. Yeah, and and Germany still has a lot of bikes, I think, uh, stored uh, exactly, d- dust yes, bikes. Yeah. So I think we have yeah. some leverage so in, in the negotiations yeah. in case uh, there is a disagreement here. Yeah, we can maybe have a, some kind of bikes for tanks deal. <laughs> <laughs> The total number of people arrested for taking part in a protest on the A12 motorway in The Hague has reached 768. The demonstration on Saturday was organised by the environmental group Extinction Rebellion near the temporary home of the Dutch Parliament to protest against fossil fuel subsidies. But it wasn't authorised by the City Council and police arrived to remove the protesters. They were all released on Sunday except for two who refused to confirm their identity. Some of the demonstrators glued themselves to the road or chained themselves together to impede arrest while the last activists held out till 4pm by climbing up a pole. (laughs) Oh, that's... uh, Might be a record, I think. Uh, (laughs) Possibly. Um, uh, But there's also some concerns raised about the right to protest uh, and that that has been infringed, right? Uh, Yes, because um, there were the arrests of preemptive arrests uh, before the protest, two days before beforehand, um, police arrested six of the organisers and in the dawn raids at their homes, which seemed a bit excessive. uh, And they were accused of inciting others to blockade the motorway by posting the time and location on social media. 
A judge issued an order banning them from the section of the A12 where the protest was taking place, and some of them then, of course, turned up anyway, and so they were arrested on Saturday for breaching the order. Uh, Hoon Links asked questions in Parliament about these arrests, uh, and Christina Turnison, the leader of the Animal Rights Party, Partei Fududiren, said the right to demonstrate was at risk. Uh, there was also criticism from the human rights watchdog, the Collegia for the Rechten von der Mens, which uh, said it showed that the right to demonstrate was under severe strain, and uh, they argued that demonstrations should only be forbidden if it was strictly necessary. Uh, of course, the city council hadn't authorised it, and uh, they said holding up traffic was recognised as a legitimate form of protest by the European Court of Human Rights. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh. Yes. <laughs> no, that's, oh. So, there we are. So, uh, <clears throat> um, the false Quant also published quite a detailed analysis, uh, raising a point that uh, was doing the rounds very much on social media, that uh, there's a big contrast between how climate protesters are treated and farmers, uh, because uh, there were arrests made at one in five Extinction Rebellion protests uh, in recent years compared to less than 5% of farms' protests. And of course, farmers also set hay bales on fire. They, they drove a tractor into the door of a provincial house and uh, could just about seemingly get away with anything short of murder without actually being arrested for it. Yeah. Um, one one then, farmer links we'll uh, that analysis in the line notes. One farmer was was uh, was shot at though. Um, how, how much does that uh, compare to uh, to uh, to which number of of arrests? Uh, uh, because we, we see so many people uh, 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 indeed uh, comparing these two forms of protest. But yeah, yeah, um, it's. Um, yeah, sh shooting at farmers in tractors is also not good. But, no, uh, okay, we should establish yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, just, yeah, but it, it does. It does seem an, an interesting uh, contrast in approach. Uh, the, 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 the certain during the farmers' protests, the police were very much talking about de-escalation and not stirring things up, which doesn't seem to be a consideration here. Uh, two journalists working for the Volkskrant were also arrested while they were reporting on Saturday's protest, which. Uh, was uh, raised as a matter of concern by the journalists' union, NFA, uh, and that's not the first time this has happened. Last week, mm. Volkskrant published an account by a reporter, Sarah Berkelion, in which she and a photographer were bundled into a police van and fined for blocking the motorway, uh, even though at the time mm. they were interviewing activists and they were carrying press cards and wearing high-visibility vests. I think a photographer was arrested this weekend, and he said he was holding a press card, but the police claimed it was fake or something. So, I, ah, okay. All a bit murky. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway, yeah, again, uh, not really good to see journalists being arrested in the course of doing their work. Yeah. Stay away from the A12, uh, Gordon, next time. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I was, uh, I think I was driving out of The Hague that day or d d driving into it. But anyway, yeah, I didn't get held up. Ah, good. The Tweede Kamer has urged Education Minister Robert Dijkgraaf to do more to limit the number of international students coming to the Netherlands. MPs are concerned about the shift towards English language teaching and the impact it has on standards of Dutch. Uh, Dijkgraaf said international students are important to the education system and economy, but added that the balance has been distorted in recent years due to the shortage of housing, overfull lecture halls and the amount of help they need. In total, 115,000 uh, international students from 168 countries are enrolled in Dutch universities. That number has tripled since 2010, and in the current academic years, foreign students account for 40% of first years. The inflow of international students has caused a series of problems, especially in the bigger cities, where there is already a housing shortage. And Dutch and, and international students alike are often unable to find a place to stay in the city where they study. Additionally, universities simply do not have the space and teachers uh, to accommodate the current number of students, and that results uh, in uh, overcrowded lecture halls. Yeah. So uh, what do MPs want to do about it? Yeah, according to CDA and VVD, the solution is very easy. Universities should be able to limit the number of international students. There should be also be a cap on students from non-European countries and universities should reduce the number of English language studies. However, while some uh, universities desperately want the government to take actions, uh, other universities, such as uh, the technical universities and Maastricht University, are in desperate need of uh, skilled international students. Deze Sester fears that uh, too severe action will lead to a shortage of students, which can in the longer term affect the Dutch economy in a negative way. MPs will vote on a number of motions calling for a reduction of international students uh, and more emphasis on the Dutch language. And Minister Dijkgraaf 
Kraft will publish his own detailed plans to tackle the issues in March, in which he will try to keep the valuable aspects of internationalization. Uh, Yeah, everyone is talking about maatwerk, right? So the the, the needs in this field of universities in Amsterdam, for example, are different than the Technical University of Twente in the east of the country near the German border. So, yeah, there is no uh, uh, one one, uh, fits all solution, I think. And um, yeah, every every university should um, yeah look uh, uh, f- for their own solutions. I think. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of the, I mean, the, obviously the the, the the reputation Dutch universities does kind of rest. Well, they, they, they still sold themselves as attractive places for international students to come and study, and it's kind of been a victim of its own success. Really, yeah. it would, it would yeah. seem. And uh, now they want to. And 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 just query how much. This uh, thing about uh, teaching courses uh, in in Dutch or in English is really going to fix anything because surely a lot of the courses that you teach in English, you teach in English because your textbooks are in English and you know the whole. Um, in, do, if you're doing anything, uh, I guess to do with like computer studies or, you know, the, 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 then a lot of the people when they go to work will work in English. So what's the benefit of having the lectures in Dutch? It's still yeah. different when you talk of teaching Dutch history or literature. Obviously, that's yeah, being yeah, Dutch, but yeah, you know, yeah, in yeah. a lot of science subjects it, or medicine, it makes a lot more sense to have the tuition in English. Surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, um, yeah, uh, um, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no solution for this. Uh, but um, what I f- did find interesting is that uh, uh, the German language studies uh, in, for example, Utrecht, yeah. are for. Uh, yeah, there are almost no Dutch students there, but uh, almost uh, 100% uh, uh, come from abroad, uh, mostly German students. So uh, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's also interesting. Some stu- that, some yeah. studies will disappear if uh, if they will uh, uh, yeah limit the uh, the the number of international students uh, on a university. If you appreciate this podcast's spicy Reistafel of news, politics and op-hef, why not tip us with a couple of euros on Patreon? We really do rely on your donations to keep bringing you this podcast, uh, as well as sampling the best fine dining The Hague has to offer. Uh, <laughs> and to show our gratitude to our generous sponsors, we give all new patrons a shout-out and uh, the chance to ask a question. This week uh, we say hello and welcome to uh, one new patron, uh, Sandra Topsant. So thank you very much indeed for your support, Sandra. And uh, do get in touch if you have any questions for us or if any other patrons or any other people have questions for us. uh, We always enjoy answering them. Topsant is a very nice name. I I like that. I wonder where it comes from. In Dutch, it it suggests that she is of uh, top quality sand. Yes, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) <laughs> we do export uh, sand to um, desert uh, countries, don't we? Do we? <laughs> building sand, apparently. It's the, ah. the quality of building sand from the Netherlands is superior. <laughs> so, yeah. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, log on to www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Dutch News NL. Leave it to the Dutch to uh, to make uh, exporting sand to a desert uh, a business model. <laughs> a business model, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, we we of course uh, a Dutch company uh, made of course these these palm uh, islands, right? They they dredged it. Uh, so uh, again, as a result of the Watersnoodramp and the Delta Works, we have a lot of uh, expertise in in these sort of uh, works. I think. Yes. The government will give financial support to healthcare workers who've been suffering from long COVID. Long-term care minister Connie Helder said the ruling would cover people who contracted coronavirus in the first three months of the pandemic, between March and June 2020, and haven't been able to return to work. I am very well aware of the urgency of the problems for some people, which is why the cabinet is working in various ways to support them as well as possible, Helder wrote in a letter to Parliament. Around a 1,000 healthcare workers have been dismissed after being off work for two years with coronavirus-related illnesses. I'm just glad that I will finally hear the name Connie Helder with regards to something that she is really a minister of, and it has nothing to do yeah. with the World Cup in Qatar or pins. Or she couldn't uh, uh, get out of this debate and jump on a plane to the, uh, <laughs> to no. the Middle East. Yeah, 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 yeah. She had to. Uh, she had to cut the uh, debate on on her on the budget of her ministry uh, because yeah. she had to go to Qatar. Yeah. Uh, so um, the unions are taking the government to court over long COVID, though. So they are not very happy with this announcement. I think. 
No, this is actually kind of a kind of a simmering row that's uh, been uh, gradually eroding. Uh, that case is ongoing and it's uh, proven to be a bit of a sticking point. Uh, the cabinet had been hoping to broker a deal between the employers' organisations and unions so that they uh, provided the support for long COVID sufferers. Uh, but that kind of deal fell through. The talks broke down. Now, Helder, in her letter, she blamed the unions. So she said they decided not to participate in the talks. But the FNFA union accused the minister of stalling tactics. Mm. The Senate has already passed a motion calling on the government to reserve 150 million euros to compensate long COVID victims. And the unions have launched a legal action demanding 22,839 euros for every victim, which is a very specific number, which they yeah. reached basically by looking at uh, payouts for other industrial illnesses such as asbestosis. So they basically argue that long COVID is a, yeah, is a an illness that has been caused by your working conditions. Because of course, mm. back at the start yeah. of the pandemic, yeah. healthcare workers weren't just exempted from um, you know, quarantine regulations. They were actually encouraged to go to work, even if their family members are infected. Now I wonder how this asbestosis payment uh, amounts to 22,839 uh, euros. <laughs> so, so some court ruling will have decided that that's... Yeah the right amount and yeah, i guess yeah, yeah. It also it'll be you know it'll be um uh, indexated so you know it'll go up by a certain percentage every uh, year that's course. probably why you yeah, get yeah, yeah. these funny figures um and also a uh, lung cancer screening program started this week right Yes, at the uh, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek Hospital in Amsterdam, it, uh, they started a trial screening uh, for heavy smokers. Uh, it's part of a Europe-wide study, and some 180,000 people from the Amsterdam region between the ages of 16 and 79 have been invited to take part. The only thing is, uh, in order to qualify as a participant, you need to have smoked 20 cigarettes a day for 35 years or longer. Oh, wow. So you've got to be have shown quite a bit of commitment to smoking, and if you've managed to survive that, then you get to, <laughs> to, to participate in a lung cancer trial uh, the, the organizers are worried that people will exaggerate how many cigarettes they've had over the years <laughs> in order to in order to get into the study and thereby distort the figures so i don't know quite how they're going to fact check how verify how much people have smoked in their lives i think they're just gonna 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 measure how yellow their 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 ceilings are yes yeah probably yeah you, you have to turn a picture yourself in a brown cafe yeah. in, in, in 1982 <laughs> yeah to, uh, to imagine uh, these kind of numbers, uh, these kind of uh, cigarettes, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, or they're going to ask, how many times a day do you take a break from work? Yes, thank you for that as break. well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, have a cigarette break. Other trials are expected to start in Drachten and Bilthoven later this year. Uh, studies have shown that early diagnosis can reduce the risk of dying from lung cancer by 26%. Mm. Currently, 80% of people who are diagnosed with lung cancer die within five years, which can be the standard measure for whether you survive. And that is around 10,000 people a year. And many people are diagnosed uh, at a late stage of the infection. And so when it's too late to save them. So yeah, this is the third largest cause of death um, in 2020, at least. Uh, Overall number one cause of death not just cancer yeah. Yeah. no 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 overall yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, I think it's uh, also the number one death due to cancer COVID-19 was in 2020 the number one cause of death by the way let's see yeah. now which makes yeah. sense yeah followed by vaccines <laughs> even though they weren't, didn't start <laughs> until 2021 yeah. back then yeah <laughs> Just over 135,000 people spotted uh, almost 2 million birds in the national bird count this week. The common sparrow tops the list again, followed by the great tit and the blue tit. The blackbird, which came third last year, has moved into fourth place, but worries about uh, dwindling figures in the last few years seem to have been mitigated. Blackbirds used uh, to be spotted in 9 out of 10 gardens, but in 2017 and 18 that went down to two-thirds of the gardens. The birds were hit by the Yuzutu virus, which now seems to have run its course. Uh, I wonder how many blackbirds died from uh, from vaccines yes. uh, against yeah. this Yuzutu virus. <laughs> um, and also uh, there was a campaign called Lift a Garden Tile uh, in order to give the birds a chance to look for worms uh, that oh, may right. also have helped. And although the news for blackbirds is slightly better, the overall urban bird population is shrinking. Research by Sovon Bird Monitoring Organization has shown the number of people taking part in the count also fell uh, 35,000 uh, on last year when coronavirus restrictions were still in force. It was basically a 
a pandemic activity, right? Bird watching, and uh, especially if you've been locked down, then you're happy with this half half hour of uh, of, of bird counting, yeah. Uh, and despite the lower turnout, uh, the annual count based on a half an hour of bird spotting in gardens or on balconies is still the biggest citizen science project in the country. So uh, wow. they, they actually use the, the the results of these uh, counts uh, in 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 scientific research, which I never right. realized, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that is quite impressive. Yeah, I have to say, I'm ashamed to say I, I didn't um, uh, take part in the bird spotting. But uh, so I was looking down this list. I've had, I've had a jay in my garden last uh, last year. They're, they're ah. kind of fifteenth on the list. I was surprised to see that um, uh, rose ring parakeets are only sixteenth because yeah. I've seen yeah. them all the time. I guess it depends where you are. In the west of the country, they're all over the place. But if it's you're further ridiculous. away yeah. from the coast, um, you probably don't see them at all. Here in yeah. Delft, uh, there, there, there are also uh, many of these of these parrots, and I rem- yeah. remember last year around this time I was walking around the Hofweiver in the Hague, and um, yeah. you saw this swarm of of, of these parrots just uh, yeah. flying over over the Binnenhof. It was if, uh, if, you, if you walk past the Binnenhof at about dusk, the trees are just full of them. You hear yeah. them cackling away. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the robin was only tenth as well. I'm surprised there were so few robins. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. But they they didn't say that that was a remarkable result or anything. So there's probably no. not uh, no worries about uh, declining probably numbers. Less of, common, uh, uh, than thought it was. Yeah. Congratulations to Anish Giri, who won the Tata Steel Chess Tournament, known as a Wimbledon of Chess, in Vikanzai this week. The 29-year-old uh, former uh, teenage prodigy wrapped up the title with a win in the 13th and last round against Romania's Richard Rapport. But he needed a helping hand uh, from his fellow countryman, Jordan van Forest. He's also the last Dutchman to win the tournament back in 2021. Van Forest scored an upset win with the Black Pieces over the 18-year-old Uzbek grandmaster, Nodiabek Abdu Satarov, who was leading the tournament into the final round. The high point of Giri's tournament, of course, was his win against the world champion, Magnus Carlsen, who's won the event eight times in the past. Giri said winning a tournament in his home country made it an extra special victory. And um, I assume there was also another classic Dutch event uh, that uh, has been taking place, right? Yes, you'd be right. Uh, the Elfstedertocht uh-huh. was last week. Yeah, Not the actual Elfstedertocht, of course. Uh, the alternative Elfstedertocht, which uh, takes place in Austria, and it will probably continue to be called the alternative Elfstedertocht even centuries after the last <laughs> Elfstedertocht was actually run. It's kind of the Holy Roman Empire of sports <laughs> events. <laughs> Yeah, it never it will never never exist again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will never end, but it will have nothing to do with Rome. It's a two hundred kilometer skating marathon through the Austrian mountains. Um, it's an annual event, or at least it'll keep going until the glaciers melt. And this year's races were won by Crispin Ariens, who won for the second time, and Sharon Hendricks. Uh, Hendricks was a bit of a surprise winner. She gave up skating, uh, marathon skating, a few mm. years ago to finish her medical studies and came back last year to race on a part time basis, and now seems to be doing better than ever and she said finish first or last i'll be working at the clinic on friday uh-huh. so hopefully she'll have taken her skates off in the meantime Perhaps she <laughs> skates to work i don't know yeah well she's one of the few people who can actually uh, uh commute to work on our skates i think yeah um even though NBC seems to think uh, uh, we all do that. Uh, uh, but this wasn't the only marathon news this week, right? No, because uh, Sifan Hassan has announced uh, she's going to run the London Marathon this year, uh, ah. which is something that uh, a lot of people have been uh, looking forward to. She's uh, obviously the Olympic champion at 5,000 metres and 10,000 metres. Uh, she's won medals and set European records at every distance of 1,500 metres all the way up to the half marathon. Uh, so there's been a lot of speculation about whether she might try her hand at the marathon running and now she's confirmed she will make her debut in London on April the 23rd. Hassan says she's curious to find out how fast she'll run. Uh, she's also said in the past she doesn't like running the 10,000 metres on the track because it gets boring. So, yeah, running 42 kilometres is uh, is maybe going to be a, a challenge. Uh, although at least she's running through London, so she'll have some uh, you know, some landmarks to look at on the way around. <laughs> I fear that if she tried to run a marathon in uh, Almira or across the uh, <laughs> across the Delta Verken, she might just expire from boredom. Um, you do know why um, the, a marathon has this peculiar distance of 42 kilometers and 195 Those extra 195 kilometers, right? meters. Yeah. Well, obviously it was originally it was measured in miles, 
but it was 26 miles yeah. and 385 yards because the first time that distance was run was at the London Olympi- Olympics of 1908 when uh, legend has it that, um, uh, that, that they insisted on finishing the marathon in front of the Royal Box. So they had to add 385 yards yep. to get halfway around the stadium to the Royal Box. So yep. yeah, those last 385 yards are full, entirely the fault of the... British royal family. I think after Brexit, they should just take them <laughs> out again. You know, they should just shorten the distance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, bring back tradition. Yeah. Um, and uh, this week was also uh, filled with football news, right? Uh, I, I saw that uh, uh, a deadline day was trending on Twitter uh, for yeah, uh, yeah, a yes. couple of days. Um, what was uh, what's all the news uh, that has come out of that? Yeah, transfer deadline day, which is uh, just means that in January clubs can buy and sell players, and then there's a deadline at midnight, um, and they all there's a big scramble on the last day uh, to try and get your uh, get your players to sign the line in time, which doesn't always work out with uh, interesting consequences. Uh, the Canafe Bay said Dutch clubs signed and released 167 players during the transfer window, and a lot of the acquisitions were loan hmm. signings, and PSV were the busiest club. Um, they sold Cody Gakpo to Liverpool and Noni Madueke to Chelsea for a total of around 83 million euros, so plenty of money in the bank, but they didn't actually spend any of it. They brought in Belgian midfielder Torgan Azad from Borussia Dortmund and Patrick van Aanholt, uh, former Dutch international from Galatasaray, but they both came in on, on loan. Feyenoord's main target was Thomas van der Belt from Pex Volle, but they couldn't agree terms, so he's now likely to make the move in the summer. And Sven Mainans of Sparta was another hmm. um, high-profile Eredivisie player in as much as there is such a thing uh, involved in the transfers. Feyenoord wanted him, but he went to Ajazek Alkmaar instead. Uh, one World Cup star who is not on the move is Hakim Ziyech. Hakim Ziyech uh, was all set for a loan move from Chelsea to Paris Saint-Germain, but it fell through because they couldn't sort out the paperwork in time. Probably because the British uh, Postal Service yeah. uh, has collapsed at the moment, and <laughs> they're, they're probably trying to send it by fax machine or carrier pigeon, and it just got snarled up. So another victim of Brexit there. And uh, finally, finally, John Heitinger car- agreed to carry on as interim coach of Ajax until the end of the season. Ajax obviously having a miserable time, um, which resulted in the sacking of Alfred Schurder last week. Uh, they did manage to win for the first time in eight games at the weekend uh, to move up to fourth in the Eredivisie, five points behind leaders Feyenoord, and the big match this weekend sees Feyenoord take on third-placed PSV on Sunday. Yeah, I, uh, I've seen um, uh, a lot of tweets from Ajax fans who are basically in a state yeah. of uh, <laughs> mental breakdown uh, because of uh, uh, what's been going on with Ajax. And I uh, didn't really understand no. it or was interested yeah, in any a, of that. It, 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 it seems to be very, very enraged. But they are fourth place now and they have the same number of points uh, compared to the other three. Uh, yeah, to one, but, two, I three, think right? they're uh, one point behind PSV. Oh, no, no, sorry. And, sorry, uh, sorry. I'm lo- three points behind yeah, Azet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the level on points is Trenta or a point ahead of Trenta. One point ahead, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. doesn't seem too bleak uh, to me, but uh, yeah. No, you see, feel like they could turn it round. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, Ajax fans are never happy, basically. No, they're, uh, they're, they're famously uh, yeah. also very pessimistic, I think, right? Uh, that's, that's also what I understand from other uh, tweets from other fans. This is all that we have for you this week. This podcast uh, is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating. You can also uh, back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. Uh, my thanks to Gordon Derek, and we'll be back next week. Fanfare scored an upset win with the Black Pieces over the 18-year-old Uzbek Grandmaster Nodirbek Abus Tasarov. <laughs> no, was it again? <laughs> Sounded confusing to me. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, scored an upset win with the Black Pieces over the 18-year-old Uzbek Grandmaster Nodirbek Abutasarov. <laughs> Why did I even think this was going to work? I don't know. Abdu Abdu Satarov. Right. Okay. Abdu Satarov. Fun for yeah, I, I won't be able to help you with this uh, with this <laughs> name though. Sorry. <laughs>